Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. softer side meet me on the softer side softer side of your heart hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Um, but tonight, of course, we are delighted to have Brett Martin, um, quite a heavy hitter. He's written for Vanity Fair, New York Times, New Yorker, Esquire, Detail, and he's a frequent contributor to This American Life, so you know it's going to be a good show. And he's actually talking about a topic that everybody wants to talk about all the time. So now, when you're with your friends, you can have all sorts of witty things to say, and the book is wonderfully readable. Um, in fact, um, it has been quoted in the reviews as insanely readable, the real story, one of the smartest smartest books about American television ever written. Let's give a warm round of applause to Brett Martin. Thank you very much. That's, I'm done. That's good. Um, uh, it's really nice to be here. I've never been in this store before, but it's beautiful, and, uh, and I'm, I'm very happy to be here. Um, and thank you all for coming out. Um, I've been talking a lot about this book um, and about television in the last... Um, few weeks and uh, but this is really the first time I've been behind enemy lines as it were um, and and uh, among those who can um, you know who who probably a little more intimately familiar with uh, with with what's in here uh, so I, I don't I, I actually was I had a bit of a quandary about whether that meant I should read uh, stuff that I could then be busted on um, by those in attendance, or if I should uh, if I should somehow find something in here that is not about um, Hollywood. Or, uh, but I think I, I will um, take the, the former route. Um, and uh, one of the things about this, um, one of the main themes of the book is is the ways in which. Um, this moment in television history um, provided this incredible opportunity for writers, but also in some ways uh, forced them to act in very unwriterly ways, or first to adapt in order to take advantage of this of this weird moment that suddenly allowed art to flourish in a medium that had you know previously been um, you know in living memory had been completely dismissed um, or close to it, um, and. I became fascinated by uh, by the writers' room, by the by this by this weird creative laboratory that uh, that exists, um, in which um, 
you know, all kinds of uh, drama takes place, but also incredible work comes out. And, and, and it's one of the arguments, I think, for television being not just um, a filmed novel or a long film, but in some ways its own creative art form with its own um, creative genesis. So, um, so this is a, a little section um, introducing those who have not been in writer's rooms, of which maybe there's one or two of you. Um, to um, what a writer's room is like. Um, and it takes place in the narrative just after David Chase has finally sold the pilot to his, um, to his show, The Sopranos. Um, and, and as a result has to now bring in other writers in order to, um, in order to fill a lot more hours. <clears throat> Chase knew the main arc of the first season where it began and where it ended, from Tony's initial panic attacks to his dawning realization that his mother tried to have him killed. That story would have constituted the feature he'd once dreamed of making. Now, though, he had to figure out how to get from point A to point B while filling 12 additional hours of television, and that meant bringing in other writers. No other art form, certainly none that putatively bears the imprint of, of an auteur, is created as collaboratively as the television drama. True, the Fellinis and Altmans of the world relied on the talent and creativity of dozens of other artists, from actors to lighting designers to hairdressers. What they didn't do was sit down in a room filled with other directors and solicit their input. Yet the very same essential truth about television that elevates the writer to master of the universe, the medium's voracious appetite for ever more content, ever more quickly, guarantees that he or she cannot do it alone. Each showrunner must bend and shape this necessity to serve his or her own method, and there are as many subtle variations of writers' rooms as there are rooms themselves. The only near absolute is that there will be a quantity and flow of food reminiscent of a cruise ship, as though writing were an athletic feat demanding a constant infusion of calories. In most rooms, there's a conference table around which the writers gather. In the center will be a pile of snacks and takeout menus, as well as pads, pens, and other implements of creativity. Along the walls, there will be spaces to organize and visual visualize ideas, usually either whiteboards or bulletin boards covered with index cards. Depending on where in the process the room is, one might contain random ideas, bits of dialogue, stray themes. Another may have the evolving outline of a particular episode, a vertical stack of numbered scenes or beats. Along the longest wall, there will likely be a grid divided into 12 or 13 vertical columns representing the number of episodes. Running horizontally will be the names of characters and what happens to them in each episode, thus allowing the writers to see each story arc at a single glance. If there's a signature tool of the third golden age, the whiteboard is it. In one seat around the table, there will be a younger person, the writer's assistant, feverishly transcribing the proceedings onto a, lap a laptop. He or she will be the only one apparently engaged in what most of the world identifies as work. <laughs> Indeed, a functional writer's room must embrace, at least in its early stages, the creative ferment of procrastination, as its members get to know one another, trade stories, and mull over the themes and narrative threads of the show at hand. Most successful showrunners encourage such bullshit sessions. Eventually, the business of the room will turn to actually breaking story, which is to say, creating an outline of specific beats. As the show progresses, the writer assigned to a specific episode will take these often incredibly specific outlines and disappear for a week or two to write. Later still, there will be rotating absences as writer-producers supervise the shooting of their scripts on set or on location. The ultimate goal, even if it's unstated, is something that goes well beyond some version of screenwriting by committee, a kind of creative communion. Said David Milch, 
who says everything in more or less this style. The best situation of all is to come clean in the writer's room and discover through your encounter with your fellow writers the nature and rhythms of the story that you're trying to tell. But between reality and that lofty goal lie any number of quotidian pitfalls. Writers who talk too much, writers who don't talk at all, yes men, naysayers, egos run amok. In other words, precisely as complicated and intense a set of conditions as one might imagine results from taking a group of artists, each the smartest and funniest in his or her, own, in his or her class, each having gotten into the business with the dream of producing his or her own work, most neurotic to one degree or another, and all feeling the pressure of competition, and putting them in a room together for eight hours a day, mostly to face rejection and all in service of another person's vision. That's the job. You're there to serve the creator, said James Manos, who wrote for The Sopranos and also for Sean Ryan's The Shield. It's a difficult position because someone like David or Sean hires you because you have your own strong voice, and then as soon as you get there, you have to start writing in their voice. Matthew Weiner admitted to being driven crazy by the idea that no one outside the inner circle of The Sopranos would ever know the good writing he did while on the show. But he said, I could never live not expressing the fact that I was working for David, in David's brain, with David's characters, trying to please David, not operating a Matt Weiner franchise of The Sopranos show. The best analogy might be a draftsman charged with designing one small element, a sconce, of an architect's great cathedral. He might find satisfying ways to express himself, might even get some career advancing recognition from hardcore sconce aficionados, but ultimately it's all about illuminating the, the master's work. And that gives the showrunner, who of course knows his, vis his own vision better than anybody, immense powers of rejection and benediction. The ultimate dream is to find writers who bring something absolutely new into the universe he's created, who give him exactly what he wants but could never have dreamed of himself. And that's when you get this stupid look on your face, Milch said. Or as Weiner put it, it's like falling in love. It should come as no surprise then that writers' rooms are somewhat intense workplaces. It hardly seems accidental that the room is a term also used in analysis and in Alcoholics Anonymous. They are hotbeds of emotional turmoil and transference. I've never been in a writer's room where the writers didn't end up psychologically picking apart the showrunner down to the finest grain, said Chris Provenzano, a writer for Mad Men and other shows. Would you like to come up and <laughs> This was a very important quote to me. I've said this to Chris, and it's nice to see you. Um, it wasn't until we had this conversation that I kind of, you know, writing a book is weird, and you're, you get lost along the way, and you don't really know um, necessarily what the book is about until you're you know, a year or two late. And, um, uh, and, and this was a, a, a important to me in sort of crystallizing that what I was, what I was writing about, which is, which is that it was less about television programs and more about writers. So thank you. <laughs> I've never been in a writer's room where the writers didn't end up psychologically picking apart the showrunner down to the finest grain, said Chris Provenzano, a writer for Mad Men and other shows. Writers are already interested in motivations and psyches. They've all been in therapy. They're all messed up and trying to fill some hole. So when the showrunner invariably does something that doesn't square or that they don't like, they start saying, he must be at war with his ex-wife. It's got to be something like that. <laughs> you become involved in this slow but inexorable dismantling of the person's psyche because that's the brain in charge of all the other brains and you're the appendages of this superorganism. David Chase, devotee of the film auteurs, had predictably complicated feelings about writers' rooms. Early in his career, he'd worked at the Rockford Files with a staff of just three who would get together and brainstorm stories, letting a tape recorder capture sudden inspiration. 
Later, grappling with the more complex storytelling of almost grown and northern exposure, he'd headed larger rooms, and he'd come to terms with their necessity for generating stories. Story construction is the hardest part of the process, he said. It's very difficult not to do things that everybody in America has already seen a thousand times. So you go in there and you say, what do we want to make happen? That, he said, is the fun part, along with the gossip, the eating, the discussing current events, the bullshitting. It's when it came time for what he called the professional part of the job that he was more dubious. Other people have good ideas, and they're hard to come by, but in another sense, they're, they're a dime a dozen, he said. Turning an idea into an episode, that's the grunt work. The organization can rest for a day or so, secure in the notion that we've got an idea, but eventually the showrunner's the one who has to look at his watch and say, all right, how are we going to fill up 42 minutes? We can all sit around and decide we want to make a Louis XIV table, but eventually somebody has to do the carving. What happens next, as he described it, is a private epiphany experienced in public. This is all a quote. Invariably, what would happen is I would get up, go off by myself, and they would continue talking. There was a couch, and I would lie on that couch, and I'd just put my story hat on. And this is not a natural thing for me. I don't like math. I don't like puzzles at all. Story work, is, to me, is that. It's figuring out this puzzle. But I would go on that couch by myself, and they'd all be talking, and then I would just sort of like, suddenly, this idea, that idea. All of a sudden, you'd get a run. It's like music. I'd see where the peaks and valleys are. This goes like this, like that, like this. And I'd get up. And I'd go to the board, and bam, 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 and then, and then, and then. It's very impressionistic. You're running really fast. Sometimes, boom, it's done. You have 14 scenes. I don't know how it works, but it would happen. To what extent such breakthroughs are facilitated by being surrounded by other writers, or happen in spite of them, appears to be an open mystery even to Chase himself. My experience is that the showrunner really has to just do it, he said. Yet if he had all the time in the world to write every word of every episode of a series, I would hire a staff. I'd get lonely. Um, so that's that section. Um, and then uh, I thought I would offer you guys the choice of another short section um, uh, that you'd like to hear. And I can, um, I can um, if you wouldn't mind being the applause meter for that, I'd appreciate that. Um, <laughs> a little early, that's cool. <laughs> but I like the enthusiasm. Um, would you like to hear uh, a story about The Wire, which everybody is boring? <laughs> everybody likes, wants to hear The Wire, but let's say The Wire. Um, well, 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 let me read them all. Hold on, don't vote yet. They're all good shows. Um, the Wire, The Sopranos, uh, Deadwood, or Mad Men. I don't know if I could do Mad Men with the... Uh, well, yeah, all right. Yeah. <laughs> Wire, The Sopranos... Uh, Deadwood or Mad Men. Uh, so why don't we start with The Wire? Oh, you, I'm just kidding. You could vote for The Wire if you want to. <laughs> no? All right. Uh, the Sopranos? Wow. <laughs> I can see where this is going. <laughs> um, Deadwood? All right. And uh, Mad Men. Mad Men's got it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. Um, I haven't read this part yet, so um, if there's words I've written but don't know how to pronounce, forgive me. It happens more than you think. Um, All right. Um, so this uh, this begins. Um, after uh, Matthew Weiner had, had already managed to finally sell uh, AMC Mad Men. 
Um, AMC deciding to build on its identity as a classic movie network made an early decision regarding how it would promote Mad Men. The PR campaign the network's PR team decided would focus not on Ham, John Ham, or any of the beautiful women in the cast, but on Weiner himself. In effect, AMC was claiming authorship as its brand. Honestly, it was all we had, said one person instrumental in building the strategy. Our tagline was created by the executive producer of The Sopranos. It was a measure of just how far television had come from the days of the anonymous, presumably replaceable showrunner, and Weiner was the perfect person for the job. He could be a dazzling speaker, eloquent, confident, persuasive, a natural storyteller with a world of anecdotes and references at his fingertips. At an early press event, the presentation of clips to specially selected tastemakers at Michael's Restaurant in Midtown Manhattan, he wowed the room, outshining such other speakers as Ariana Huffington and Jerry Delafemina. Though he treated upcoming plot developments with the overwrought secrecy of nuclear codes, once they had aired, Weiner was willing to expound at astonishing length upon themes, references, callbacks to previous episodes, inside jokes, important costume decisions, and all other aspects of his grand design. Wasn't that amazing, he would say, or that was hilarious. <laughs> and it would take an interviewer, used to the usual rules of human discourse, a moment to remember that Weiner was speaking unabashedly about his own work. Indeed, for somebody who had not grown up, say, in the wilds of Africa, and who was, um, who was not obviously autistic, Weiner could be shockingly oblivious or indifferent to how the things he said and, he said and did appeared to others. Either that or he genuinely could not control his most self-aggrandizing and competitive impulses. In one characteristic, off-repeated piece of industry gossip, he was introduced to the showrunner of a hugely successful and popular network hit. On the way out, Weiner stopped to say, see you at the Emmys. Actually, we're not nominated, the man said. That's right, Weiner said, turning on his heel. You're not. <laughs> At the same time, he could inspire fierce loyalty among colleagues. The negative stories, Christina Wayne, who was an executive at, at, at AMC, insisted, were the product of jealousy and grudge holding. I'm sorry, people got fired from that writer's room. Weiner seemed determined to eclipse even Chase in writer turnover because they weren't any good, she said. Him being difficult, I think of it as his passion and I respect it. I've been on the other side when people took my work and tried to change it. So whenever Mac got upset or pissed off or screamed, I felt like, yeah, you're right, protect your work. And that's your goal, to work with somebody like that. When I work with somebody who doesn't care or phones it in, that's what pisses me off. That's when I feel like you're a fucking douchebag. I'd work with someone like Matt who gives it all up, hands down, any day. Weiner, of course, had, had been raised not to shy away from accomplishment. His biggest fear at The Sopranos had been that nobody would ever know how much he'd written. A first-time visitor to the set once made the mistake of chatting with the director about the episode being filmed. Weiner, who had written it, pulled him aside. In TV, he said after introducing himself, the director means nothing. Having his own show is vindication. Because of the writer's strike that stretched between 2007 and 2008, neither cast nor crew could attend that season's Golden Globe Awards, gathering instead on the top floor of the Chateau Marmont to watch on TV. When the show won for best television series, the party erupted. Weiner climbed up on a chair to make a speech. This is what you wait for, he said in this, his moment of triumph. So you can go tell all those people who've, never had, who've ever said anything bad to you to go fuck themselves. And he had zero qualms about making sure that the world knew exactly how much of the show belonged to him. A writer's draft, he maintained, was almost always just a shadow of a blueprint for the eventual episode, the frame of a house with barely any walls, let alone wallpaper. The problem for many writers, he said, is that once they've ex executed the outline, they feel like it's finished, and you know that it's nowhere near finished. 
you know that it's a stab, just a stab at it. Actually, I don't think that they could even work if they knew how unfinished you know it is. Rewriting, even drastic rewriting, had always been part of the showrunner portfolio. According to custom, except in extreme cases, the first draft's writer's name would remain alone atop a script, no matter how much work the showrunner had done. His or her involvement, it was understood, was implied by the job title. Chase, as time had gone by, had grown increasingly frustrated by the fact that this often meant his work was going unrecognized. As The Sopranos proceeded, he had added his name to the authorship of scripts with growing frequency. Weiner, though, brought the practice to an entirely new level. He adopted a rule that if more than 20% of a writer's script remained, he or she would retain sole credit. If not, Weiner added his name. A measure of how difficult that benchmark um, was to reach. Of 65 episodes through season five, 50 were at least partially written by Weiner. It became enough of an industry inside joke that it was the subject of a sight gag on 30 Rock. Talking about the policy, Weiner was defensive but steadfast. For me, it's just a matter of, my well, of the well-being of my daily interaction with the people I work with, he said. For me to watch somebody go up there and get an award for something I'd written every word of, I couldn't live with it. I'm not Cyrano de Bergerac. Um, the debate was charged enough to, to itself end up on an episode of Mad Men, which, after all, is, a part, is in part about creative people working together in a collaborative atmosphere where, nevertheless, some, some members are more equal than others. And somebody recently, in, in re response to the book, said, asked me whether, um, why, that it, why there's no um, show about showrunners, and I said, well, it's probably Mad Men. Um, in the suitcase, Peggy complains to Don about his not giving her sufficient credit for her ideas, and the, f the fight gets heated, and Don says, that's the way it works. I give you money, you give me ideas, Peggy says. You never say thank you. That's what the money is for. I don't know how it ever got to be the other way, Weiner said, of the tradition of a soul writer get getting credit, no matter what the circumstances. It's like, you know what you wrote, and I know what I wrote. You really want everyone to think you wrote all of it? You can really sit there and not have a problem with that? I mean, it's one thing for me to pretend I didn't write something, but for someone to pretend that they did, that's hard to stomach. Other showrunners, if they didn't adopt Weiner's policy, certainly sympathized with him, even admired his abandoning of traditional niceties. All had had at least one stomach-wrenching experience of watching someone take credit for their work. I'm impressed, Breaking Bad's Vince Gilligan said. I recall times when I would rewrite other people's scripts and my name wouldn't go on the rewrite, and more than missing out on some money, I'd have the feeling of, the world's not going to know the work I did here. It would gall me. Maybe tradition is something to fight against. Gilligan was speaking in a round table that also included Weiner and David Milch. Ego suppression, Milch agreed, can be an unhealthy act, it can be an unhealthy act of ostentation. Well, said Weiner, I'm very healthy. <laughs> so, thank you. I, and then I, um, you know, I'm willing to um, to uh, answer some questions or talk or discuss anything anybody wants to talk about. <laughs> Um, some people come off better than others, <laughs> and um, I've heard from a few of those, but not from some of the people who ha would have reason to be um, less happy. Um, no, it's been pretty silent. I don't really expect to hear more. So, um, but a couple of people have been very nice, and uh, a couple of people have corrected some uh, factual stuff, which I was, which we were able to, <laughs> we were able to, to fix. And um, but generally, no, I haven't had a lot of feedback from my subjects. What was your criteria for uh, what people to include and not? Um, 
it was difficult going into it, um, no pun intended. It was, it was hard to, um, to draw the parameters um, because, first of all, they kept making television the whole damn time, which was really <laughs> very impolite. Um, uh, you know, so that, uh, and, 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 and there's so much being written and produced on, on, on a daily, weekly basis that, you know, it was very important for me to draw some lines. So, so I was only interested in, um, in cable. Um, dramas, hour-long dramas, particularly ones that f followed this kind of formal, um, I, wouldn't, I don't know if it's an innovation, but this formal convention of 12 to 13 hour-long episodes, which I think is, you know, characteristic of this, all of these. Um, um, so, yeah, that, so drama, cable, um, 13 episodes, and and then my, my interest was in um, the ways that these shows are preoccupied with um, with the antihero, with you know, with masculinity in a way, and in the ways that m that mirrored the men making it. Um, so that helped. You know, th th there were certain shows that made perfect sense. You know, sort of with that thesis, um, which is that that there was something organic about the time and the medium that that, that created this kind of antihero movement, which we may be at the end of now, um, um, or at least. The, the sort of initial uh, wave of it seems to have passed to some extent. So that was my, and, and it meant leaving some stuff on the table. The other, the other more subtle distinction was that I wanted to leave out what I call mysteries, which are, um, like for instance, the, the first season of Damages, which I like very, very much, um, is, a, is a sort of a self-contained mystery um, narrative, which is a little less interesting to me. I think it's a great show, and has, but uh, is a little less interesting to me because it's the open-ended quality of the narratives of, of, that I think really makes, makes television uh, its own art form. So those were the, that's it. And I'm, but I, I, you know, I left out everybody's favorite show anyway. So I mean, I, you know, which I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. Why, while writing this, why do you think well, I think I think you know the the easiest answer is that um, men run TV, and um, and a certain type of man was you know had had more access to being a showrunner during this period. That's that's sort of a, a baseline truth to some extent. Um, that uh, that that's the case. I, I do believe that there's oh, there was also something in the air uh, in this past 15 years uh, in which culturally, politically, socially, um, manhood, male power, male combat uh, ha has been. Um, has been, you know, a, a preoccupation. Um, it certainly politically was, you know, during the period right before, you know, Sopranos was sort of a premonition of this, but, you know, in the time this really gets going, um, you know, our political discourse is, is totally concerned with, you know, how, how American male power gets used. You know, are we a nation of men? Are we a nation of French ladies? You know, um, uh, um, and then, you know, and, and I think, I think it was a first, you know, in sort of, it was an easy first risk to take in some weird ways, you know, that, that, that if you were going to start having really complicated characters, it, you know, it was clear that a charismatic male characters kind of were, you know, sort of the first wedge into that. Um, and it didn't hurt that Tony Soprano, you know, was a huge hit, and, and people would imitate what comes after Tony Soprano. But, but I do think, I mean, I think it started to change, and I think that, that it needs to be said that there are women throughout this book um, 
in incredibly important vital roles and throughout these shows in incredibly important vital roles we playing characters that were more well-rounded more complicated more challenging to like or uh, be seduced by than had ever been before so you know I think you could list those um, um, so uh, and the fact that that, that that that's starting to balance out a little more is, is, is obviously a good thing yeah I like your comparison with uh, David Chase and Blank Cross and Damages, uh -huh. um, which is hysterical, I think, because right. the showrunner that left uh, The Sopranos now Right, he's he's speaking about uh, the dam damages was created by um, an ex Sopranos writer named Todd Kessler, and it's it's about a a ingenue uh, fallen under the sway of a capricious, brilliant but sometimes cruel um, mentor, and uh, and essentially it was inspired by his time on The Sopranos. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, all these shows are about writing television shows on some level. Or I shouldn't say that, but but it, you you know that kind of um, echo uh, is uh, uh, you know you see throughout. Um, yeah. Is this a particularly you know, I, I I I don't know enough to to be definitive about that. I do I do know that we borrowed a lot from. I mean, the idea of a limited series, and 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 the, the idea of. Uh, I mean, certainly we borrowed a lot from what the BBC was doing. Although you know, the again, this open endedness is is characteristic of. Very American to never want a show to end, you know. The idea—I mean, that's the, this great, all the, the the great British thing of of just simply ending something. I mean, one of the one of the things that's that's fascinating uh, that I say about, you know, a lot of these guys turn out to be rather pessimistic, um, and I I make the argument that that's actually. Uh, vital if you want to um, if the man if the commercial mandate is to keep going forever um, uh, and um, um, and you want to stay true to some kind of artistic vision the way to do it is to uh, believe in your heart that nothing ever gets better and everybody falls back into their old behaviors and uh, and that's sort of a you know it's, it's sort of intrinsic to the form to have a kind of negative uh, view of life um, I don't know the I don't know the the, the answer. I think um, I'm I, I think we borrowed um, certainly the, the British were doing great work on television, um, but uh, I I wish I you know I'd like to be pointed in the right direction if uh, if there is some something really analogous out there. Yep. Um, I'm curious if you think there's any relationship between uh, I mean it just strikes me as possibly coincidence, but the rise of Internet culture, mm -hmm. the Sopranos. I mean, it's almost like in lockstep that one starts yeah. at the same time, and this boom follows. And whether that was a key element. I, I mean, I think it, it, it's changed everything about our kind of intimate engagement with television. Um, Somebody asked me, you know, there's this famous uh, the college episode of of uh, the Sopranos in which uh, Tony takes Meadow out to um, on a college tour and sees a rat and kills somebody, and, and it was and I make this case that um, that he uh, that that's you know the sort of signature that's the moment where everything changes that's the Ozzie and Harriet sharing a bed moment of of the new television and. Um, and somebody said, "Well, so what was the feedback like the next day?" And and I, you know, had to think about. It. I said, well, no, "There was no feedback the next day. Nobody tweeted about it. There was no blogging about it. There was no, you know, it was it was, you know, the people who had reviewed the show reviewed the pilot, and that was about it. I mean, there was there was feedback in in, in offices and you know water coolers, um, and now the." 
um, the kind of intense engagement every moment of every show. I, the other thing that, you know, the, one of the big signatures of this time is, um, is how we can watch anytime. You know, we can watch, we watch them in binge, you know, binge watching or, or uh, days later. But actually, if you want to watch Mad Men, um, you have to watch it at the right time or not go to your computer for the next five days because you're going to find out, you know, what happened. So we've actually come full circle where it's forcing us back into watching whenever the, the network wants us to watch. Um, I do think recapping is a fascinating, I mean, that's become sort of the way we talk about these shows is this really um, wild kind of phenomenon of, of people, you know, recreating moment by moment uh, what they've just watched. Um, and uh, and I, I think all of that is indicative, has both helped fuel the revolution, but is also indicative of, of how intimately we and intimately engaged we are and how kind of... Um, there is something about this going on in our houses, in our on our screens, in our bedrooms that um, that creates this kind of feverish, um, very very tight engagement. So, yeah. Uh, I've met Vince Gilligan briefly, and he doesn't seem as difficult as some of the other people right. talked about. Um, did you feel like you were having to put them all in one basket to make a point that that not necessarily fits all? Mm. I, I didn't think so. I mean, I, I mean, I, his show uh, certainly reflects. Um, I mean, there's certainly a difficult man on that show. Um, uh, you know, it's almost everybody is Vince Gilligan has such a great reputation, and and that's been my experience with him that I sort of half hope he killed somebody. You know, and, and it comes out, and you know, and and he looks worse than everybody else. Um, uh, no, there, there, uh, every one of my the people I write, of these showrunners is located on a on a somewhere on a continuum and um you know and and he'll describe himself as um a neurotic control freak um you know and and you know that's that's his self-image and um and i and it's worth pointing out that the most autocratic let's say matt weiner you know does take you know does have a writer's room and does you know um uh Acknowledge the, the you know, input of other people and, and takes um, ideas from other people, and the most democratic among whom uh, you know Vince is, um, is the king of that show, and is um, you know find the final arbiter and the final you know and has the last word over every last detail. So, um, Alan Ball is another. Uh, showrunner who has a great reputation among the people who've worked for him. Um, not all of it, you don't have to be a particular kind of crazy, um, I don't think, to, to do these things, but they're all uh, ferociously um, attached to their vision and um, I, I think I, it'd be interesting to see, you know, if, if, if they all had more in common than, than what separated them, but um, no, I mean, there's no question that, that, um, that Vince um, uh, is one of the more gentlemanly of them. You said it was coming. I'm sorry. To keep you said it was coming to an end. You thought. What, what is that? What is well, no. I, I think we. I think that the um, there seems to be a kind of anti-hero fatigue, uh, judging by the um, judging by what, the response to this book to some extent, and then to Ray Donovan. Um, uh, there's uh, there's been some. You know, I have a sense that that um, that. I, I, I would argue that the that the kind of first wave, the kind of exhilaration and excitement of the first wave, is is somewhat over. And now we have kind of steadily burning lights of quality in a few places across the dial, and, and sort of you know new places growing. And um, but that the kind of revolutionary nature of that first wave. Um, 
has passed, and I think that uh, I think that we have exhausted to some extent, whether it's just by imitation or um, or something bigger, um, the idea that it's enough to have a, 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 a this anti-hero character at the center of a show and so I think you're getting more there's no longer as much of a pressure for that to be the key you know there's more complicated stories to be told or more nuanced ones yes so you sort of touched the book on how there was an element of post 9-11 Iraq sort of factoring in mm -hmm. do you feel that there would be anything sort of to add to the idea that that we sort of, as a people, were more interested in feeling a little bit about whether you were the good guys or bad guys. Right. Yeah, I think that that's the, I mean, I, I touched on it a little bit just before. You know, I do think that our own ambivalence about the, the, the monsters within us and about what was being done in our name and, uh, and, and our ill ease in the world um, and anxiety. I mean, you know, it, it had a lot to do with with um, responding to characters that were more um, were more complicated. Um, and I think there was part of it that was really about humanizing. Um, you know, somebody. Uh, um, what's his name? It's, it's escaping me. Um, I'm sorry, I can't remember the writer's name, but he made a very good point, and you can buy the book, and it's in there. About, um, <laughs> um, about uh, you know, that in some ways, uh, learning to love, learning to find the good in Tony Soprano was not all that different from trying to figure out if, you know, Dick Cheney had a heart. Um, and, you know, and, and what, and, and, you know, humanizing um, sort of, those who, um, who might seem sort of monstrous. Um, so I think, I think that, I, I do think, and, and, and then again, I, and I, uh, on top of that, I do think the kind of swagger and ma sw swaggering masculinity of um, of that era of the Bush years um, had a lot to do with with responding to the, to this. Yeah. Um, a little bit of a tough question to formulate, but um, you talked about the the showrunners and the people who motivated the projects. Um, in the general phenomenon, um, uh, it seems to me that, especially in the front offices or the head offices at HBO, there must have been some executives who made an you know, important decision 10, 15 years ago to sure. invest in this kind of drama. And it's again, particularly, I suppose HBO has generated an incredible flood of quality American television production, like the third great wave, as you say. What was the dynamic between those executives? How much do you look at that? I, I do. I mean, I spend. I mean, <clears throat> no. I, I mean, the 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 um, the collaboration between um, the the writers and their executives is a, a major part of this narrative too. Particularly early on in um, uh, at HBO with uh, Chris Albrecht and and Carolyn Strauss, and then at each stage of the way, enlightened self-interest on the part of um, on the part of executives played a huge role. Um, you needed to and 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 the uh, willingness to take risk. I mean, the right kind of executive had to be in place at each at each uh, part in, in order to do what, you know, to sort of either be desperate enough or um, or devil may care enough to kind of make uh, hard, these kind of risky decisions. So I don't, I don't, uh, and, and it's funny because it's kind of a reflex for writers to complain about the suits, you know, and, and the, um, and, you know, by and large, they were the most, this has been the most supported, coddled, you know, I mean, uh, uh, you know, allowed to run free group of writers that have ever existed on television. So, um, 
so it's almost just a reflex. But yeah, no, I, I do. That's a big part of the story, and it's and it's a big part of the book. Because yeah, it's remarkable that it's taking place at the same time, like ten years ago. This town was in layers where distress. It was a reality show here. Right. Right. It seems that the structure of HBO does not have commercials to have uninterrupted drama. You know, that's just sort of the framing that allows for it to take place. But some of it's not like this. Absolutely, and and you know the the, the truth is what the, the, the in some ways the bigger leap was was to recognize that some of the same conditions existed on basic cable, where um, in the world in this you know in a in a media landscape where there's a thousand different choices, it's it, more important than you know ratings necessarily is being known because if you don't get known you disappear completely, and so so it was those I mean in some ways that's an even harder leap for the executives at FX at AMC to to take, and and they deserve credit for that. Are there FX book uh, series in the book? Uh, the Shield is it sort of stands in for a bunch of them, but yes, the Shield is a, a huge moment, um, um, and I didn't have a section to read, so you couldn't vote on it. But um, uh, Rescue Me was a show that I originally intended on being a major tentpole of, the sh of this book, and and it just sort of didn't. It was it's almost like it existed on a separate family tree. I just never really got around back to it. And, and The Shield, you know, for, for um, while I like Rescue Me more than The Shield as a viewer, um, Shield's a hugely important show because it did make that, the, the fire leaped across the, 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 um, the trench into, um, into commercial television. Um, and, uh, and, and Damages is in here. And I mean, I mentioned a bunch of other shows, but the real one that gets attention is, um, is, uh, is um, The Shield. Well, thank you very much. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.